Good morning, everybody. We are reading this morning from 2 Timothy, chapter 1. And you can follow along on the screens. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I, am a, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phagelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Aniferous because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Good morning, everyone. My name's Stephen, one of the ministers here, and it's great to be with you today. Now, I turned 40 this year, and uh, here's a picture, I know it's hard to believe, isn't it? Um, here's, a, here's a picture uh, with my family uh, when that happened, and, and, and here's one with my older sister who's 47, and she said to me um, when I turned 40, she said, when you turn 40, it gives you clarity, it causes you to sort of reflect back on the last 40 years and what's really mattered to you. And then to look forward and think, what really matters next? What is going to be important in my life from here on in? Now, I think my sister's probably right. You know, 40 years flies by, really. And it's, it's made me think, you know, what have I done with my life so far? Have I made the most of it? And it's made me think, what do I do with what's next? And they're sort of not really comfortable questions to ask in some ways. But they are clarifying questions. Looking back, what's really mattered in my life? Looking forward, what really matters next? 
I'm not sure I've um, completely figured out the answers just yet. My birthday was in March, and so COVID-19 kind of stole the party a little bit, and I haven't really had much time to think since then. But from time to time, I, I do find myself thinking, how do I make the rest of my life count? What really matters? And I suspect that I'm going to land on a variety of answers. Some will have to do with investing in my marriage. Some will have have to do with adapting to parenting teenagers and then adult, adult children as well. But a big part of the answer is going to have to do with how I use the rest of my life to serve God. Today and, and for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at Paul's second letter to Timothy. And this is a letter that's really helpful to help 40-year-olds avoid a midlife crisis. Because this letter, letter is really helpful in clarifying what really matters. Paul, he writes this letter in about the year 64 AD. He writes it to Timothy, who's worked, for him, worked with him for a long time and, and who's like a son to him. And Timothy, he's all the way over in Ephesus, what we'd call Western Turkey these days. And Paul writes from Rome, where he's in prison. Now this time, it's the second time he's in prison and it's not the kind of low security home arrest arrangement like the first time. This time he's more like in a maximum security Roman prison, which is probably a hole in the ground with bars across the top where he's literally chained and he knows he's not getting out this time. He doesn't know when exactly, but he knows that this time... He's going to die because of his faith in Jesus. So what we have in this letter is clarity. What we have is clarity about what really matters. Now, Paul's an apostle, which means he had a special role to bring the message of Jesus to the world. So read any of his letters and, and you'll see that he always has clarity. It's, it's, it's not like he needed a near-death experience to have clarity. He always writes with the words that the Holy Spirit writes through him. The clarity that we get in this letter with Paul facing death, it's not Paul finally getting his thoughts together, it's the clarity of someone wanting to make sure they are passing on what really matters to someone else taking one of the last opportunities he has to make sure Timothy has got what really matters clear in his mind. You know, it's like Paul is, is tapping out and he's making sure that Timothy is going to know how to continue the good fight without him. And we get to listen in on this letter. And that's actually what Paul wanted. You know, it's not like someone rummaged through Timothy's diary and was like, oh, cool, a letter from Paul. This is actually a public letter to Timothy that we're supposed to listen in on it. It, it ends with Paul writing, grace be with you all. And what we hear is Paul looking back, Paul at the end of his life remembering. But then what we hear is Paul looking forward, Paul at the end of his life reminding Timothy, asking him to remember what really matters. So this letter, it's, it's going to be really helpful for us who are listening in to hear, even if you're not 40 and tempted to buy a Harley or get a tattoo, this is really helpful. In fact, if you're 13 here today, 
this is incredibly helpful for you. What really matters for you as you face your entire life? Or if you're 23 here today, what really matters in your life when you're in your prime? Or 40 or 83, what really matters with what's next? This letter is super helpful for that. So we get to listen in on this dying apostle telling his most loved co-worker what really matters. And in chapter 1, one of the big things that we get to hear Paul say to Timothy is remember that what really matters is the gospel. Remember that what really matters is what the gospel tells us really matters. So first of all, Paul looks back in this letter and he remembers, he remembers all sorts of things. In verse 3, he constantly remembers Timothy in his prayers. In verse 4, he, he remembers Timothy's tears the last time they had to say goodbye. And in verse 5, he remembers Timothy's sincere faith. And remembering like this, looking back, he then looks forward and he wants Timothy to remember certain things. In verse 6, he says, For this reason, because of Timothy's sincere faith, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Timothy, he'd been appointed to work alongside Paul. He was commissioned or or, ordained for that role. And God had gifted him by the Holy Spirit for that role. But what's helpful to see is that like a fire... Timothy can either let his gift smolder or he can feed and stoke this fire and kindle it into flame. Now, this is really important. God gifts Timothy with what he needs for this role, but that's not the end of the story. Timothy can either sit back or he can step up. And Paul, looking forward... He wants him to remember to step up. This is true for Timothy, but I don't see why this isn't true for any of us, actually. All of us have been gifted by God. Every follower of Jesus has been gifted by God. You know, certainly Coops and I have have been appointed, commissioned, ordained, however you want to put it, for a role like Timothy's. But actually every Christian is gifted by God for a role and plays a role in using our gift for God, a role where we can either fan into flame that gift or let it smolder. Which one do you reckon you're doing right now in life? Fanning or letting it smolder? Now, to be able to answer that question well, we need to know, well, what does it look like to fan the gift of God into flame? Look at verse 7, where Paul reminds Timothy what it looks like. He writes... For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love and self-discipline. And he goes on in verse 8 to show what that looks like. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul's in jail. People have deserted him. The gospel message is under attack and and Timothy could well face the temptation to be embarrassed. I mean, he could be embarrassed of Jesus, killed 
by the Roman authorities. It's kind of weak and pathetic. He could be embarrassed of Paul. Jesus, apostle, imprisoned, chained, abandoned by other Christians. That looks pretty pathetic. But if Timothy fans into flame the gift that God's given him through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's not going to lead him to be timid. Instead, it will start a powerful fire in him that leads him to be willing to even suffer for the gospel. It's a strange kind of power, isn't it? It's a a deep kind of love, a courageous kind of self-discipline. But can you hear what Paul is reminding Timothy here? He's reminding him that what really matters is the gospel, so much so that it's even worth suffering for. Now, it's not like Timothy doesn't know the gospel. Timothy well knows the gospel. But as Paul is passing over the baton to Timothy, he wants to make sure he and us have got this really clear. And so he reminds us of just how wonderful the gospel is. Look at verse 9. Paul writes, He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This week, I was reading some of the the horror stories of the pain that COVID-19 and border closures has caused for so many people with dying friends and and family in other states. You know, on top of the grief of of losing someone loved, that's so loved, so many people have have got to deal with this situation of not even being able to say a proper goodbye. The border restrictions that mean that you've got people quarantining for 14 days, trying to get to someone to say goodbye, sometimes being too late. You've got people who can't even go to the funerals of their parents. It's an awful situation. And those times where you lose someone that you love, they are extremely clarifying kind of times. And this kind of time that we're in, all the more so. It clarifies so much in life. It clarifies that life is frail and, and short and that... Death is just so awful and crushing. But the gospel is a message that tells us that Jesus has abolished death, has brought immortality to light, for real, as a free gift for anyone, for anyone who entrusts their life to Jesus. Now, that is a message that really matters. And for Paul, there alone in a cold prison facing death, this is a message that really matters to him. But not just for him personally. He sees that this is a message that matters for the world. Look at verse 11. He writes, and of this gospel... Where is it gone? Oh, yes, there it is. He writes, and of this gospel I was appointed a herald, someone who proclaims the message, and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am, yet this is no cause for shame. And this brings us to our second point. What we're listening in on here is Paul saying to Timothy, 
remember the examples of those who really get that the gospel is what really matters. Now, Paul, he's giving himself as an example here. He's a great example of someone who sees with clarity what really matters. He's there in prison for the gospel message, and he's not embarrassed because he knows just how real and just how wonderful the gospel message is. But he's not the only example that, that he gives of someone who really gets this. He points Timothy back to remember the examples of his grandmother and his mum. Look at verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Paul is reminding Timothy of, of the huge impact that these women have had on him. Their faith was sincere, and, and they've carefully passed it on to Timothy. Now, as a parent, I reckon this is, is super encouraging. You know, the example that a parent sets their kids about what really matters in life can have a huge impact on their lives. It's encouraging, but it's also a bit challenging, isn't it? I was at the dentist the other day this, through this week, and, and I noticed that they were being extra nice to everyone. You know, uncomfortably kind of nice. And I'm thinking, what's going on? And then I realized they were doing a survey to see how people found their time there. Now, in the end, I didn't get asked to do the survey. I think um, because they forgot about my appointment and so left me sitting there for a long time. And they, they didn't want me to skew the results towards a more accurate picture. So they didn't get me to fill it in. But it, it made me think this week, if someone surveyed my kids and asked them what I think really matters in life, asked them what they think I think really matters in life, would they say the gospel? Is that the example that, that my life just clearly sets to them? Or if the survey asked a slightly different question, if it asked, if it asked my kids what they think I think really matters for their lives, would they say the gospel? Would they say that I think that it's worth them suffering even for this message? Now, no parent wants their kids to suffer, but actually we're constantly setting an example of what we think is worth making sacrifices for in life, for career, or education, for money, for sport, for friends, for family, for holidays? Are we setting an example that says it's worth making sacrifices for the gospel? It's worth making sacrifices so that other people will hear about life, immortality in Jesus. Now, Timothy was a, a young bloke who seems to have given up the typical dream of getting married, settling down, raising a family. His willingness to make those sacrifices started in Lois and then Eunice, and they passed it on to him. Paul says to Timothy, remember the examples of, of those who really get what really matters. And then he reminds Timothy of, of another example, someone called Onesiphorus. Now, Onesiphorus seems to just be an ordinary Christian who really gets it. Look at verse 16. Paul writes, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often ref refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. 
You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. So Onesiphorus, he's from Ephesus, which is where Timothy is, is ministering. But he's traveled all the way to Rome. He looked for Paul and he found him, even though it was quite difficult to find him. He was not ashamed of this weak apostle chained in a hole in the ground. He was not ashamed of, of Jesus, his crucified Lord. He helped Paul, would have probably brought him food, clothes, company. And he did it for the sake of the gospel message getting out there. And now either Onesiphorus is dead or he's still separated from his household, his family. And that's why Paul writes like this. But either way, this is a guy who really got it. Who saw that the gospel is more important than anything else. Worth making sacrifices for. Even though it meant being away from his family. He shaped his life around the gospel. Do you have examples like that in your life? Of people who, who really get that the gospel really matters? Maybe your parents or, or maybe someone in your church? As I was thinking about this, I think we're actually all the poorer for not having examples like this. For not letting examples like this have a big impact on our lives. We either don't have these people in our lives or we just don't notice them in our lives. I mean, in our church, there are great examples of people who, who are like this, who aren't perfect, but people who run evangelistic courses People who pray for their friends to come to know Jesus and, and speak whenever they can. People who make sacrifices giving money to gospel work, CMS and other things overseas and locally. We need to help each other to, to shape our lives around what really matters. We need to encourage each other to fan into flame the, the gift that God's given us. One of the saddest things for me being in ministry these last well, t at least 10 years, has been watching how hard it is to, what a struggle it is to pass this on to kids, our kids, for parents. You know, are we losing something? Are we forgetting something? Another sad thing for me has been how hard it is to inspire people to go into ministry, to make that sacrifice. It's not really that much of a sacrifice, but it's getting harder and harder to encourage people to go into ministry. In my year at college, there were 130 people. In Dave Harrington's year at college this year, there are 50 people. Why? Are we missing something? Are we losing something? You see, the gospel does not pass itself on. And don't get me wrong. God is God. He doesn't need us like we need Him. He, he's not at our mercy. And yet, nonetheless, Paul tells Timothy that he needs to guard the gospel. This is our last point. Paul tells Timothy to remember God will guard your life. Your job is to guard the gospel. Look at verse 12 again. So Paul writes, this, That's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I've believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, what we're seeing here is that Paul, when he met Jesus, he saw what really matters in life. He met the Lord and the Savior of this world. 
He saw that immortality and, and, and life had been brought to light in Jesus. And so what does he do? He entrusts his life to Jesus. He knows that Jesus alone is able to keep his life safe. Nothing else. Jesus alone will keep his life safe for that day when Jesus returns and fixes every wrong in this world. And so Paul says to Timothy, verse 13, What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. And then verse 14, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. So do you see that? God guards our life when we entrust it to him. Our job is to guard what God entrusts to us. This is what really matters and what this letter is all about. It's all about how Timothy and us are to guard what's been entrusted to us. How we're to guard the gospel message and the gospel pattern of, of living and teaching that goes with it. Do you see what Paul's telling us here? He's telling us that we shouldn't presume that the gospel will be fine. We shouldn't presume that the gospel will flourish and, and be active amongst us and, and that we'll all just agree on it. If anything, the opposite is true. If we put in no effort to guard the gospel message, then we'll corrupt it. You see, the, the instance that we think that the gospel doesn't really matter is actually the very same instance that, that we start to corrupt it. The instant that we think it's one thing that matters among other things is the instant that we start to corrupt it. The gospel is central and it shapes everything. Is that true for us as a church? Is it true for you, for your family? The gospel is the simple message of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, that he is Lord and Saviour. But it's a simple message that shapes us, shapes our priorities, shapes our morals, shapes our lives, our hopes and dreams, shapes everything. Paul says, what you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with, love, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Now, there's, there's some treasures that you guard by keeping them away from people, but there's some treasures that are quite different to that. So how do you guard the treasure of the lessons learnt from World War I? Well, Anzac Day is part of the answer to that, lest we forget. You throw open the doors of the, the horrors of war and the benefits of peace and you try to guard this message by passing it on down through the generations. What about how do you guard the value of, of democracy and, and freedoms? Well, you, you shine a light on fake news and you don't let small corruptions slide. Uh, you point out erosions of, of freedoms of the press, freedoms of speech, foreign interference, politicians trying to claim more than they should and rise above the law. You guard democracy and freedom by, by doggedly holding to the truth and calling out those who would deceive. How do you guard the gospel? Well, that's what this letter is about. That's what we're going to see over these next three weeks. But what we'll see is, is you promote it. You publish it. 
You live a life shaped by it. You defend it. You point out distractions from it. You know it. You know it so well that you can pick what's fake news rather than good news. You know when the shape of the gospel is being distorted in how it's lived or taught. You know it so well that you recognize on the one hand when grace and love is being replaced by rules and self-righteousness. But you know it so well on the other hand that you can tell when the gospel is being replaced by a kind of comfortable, cheap way of living that refuses to accept the holy calling that Jesus gives us. We're all called to remember the gospel. We're all called to remember that it's what really matters and to remember gospel examples in our lives. We're all called to entrust our lives to God and we're all entrusted to guard the gospel. But we do this in slightly different ways, don't we? So for me as as a a pastor and and a preacher, I do it in a slightly different way perhaps sometimes to you. For me, at, at times, guarding the gospel will involve when I'm preaching and I come across passages that I'm tempted to find embarrassing or aspects of the gospel that are, are countercultural, things like sin. Now, I could, be a time, I could be tempted at those times to sing from culture's songbook, but I've got to remember, my job is not to keep the world happy. It's not even to keep you guys happy. My job is to guard the gospel. And it's slightly different, perhaps for you, in how it expresses itself, but it's the same principle. Think of a community group leader. I actually reckon it might be even harder for a community group leader than for me in some ways. You know, guarding the gospel with faith and love when you have a small group of people weekly in your house who you love, who are friends, that you don't want to upset, can be quite tricky. But again, your job as a community group leader is to guard the gospel with faith and love. And sometimes that takes being willing to face awkward situations, even willing to suffer. And what we're going to see in this letter is that suffering doesn't just happen out there. Next week, we're going to see it's actually much closer to home. Our job as community group leaders, again, is not to guard people's happiness, but to guard the gospel. Or as a parent, this is your job. You know, they say that the first generation sings amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But if we're not careful to guard the gospel, the second generation sings everyday grace, how bland the sound that saved a wretch like John Newton. And then the third generation, their kids, will sing terrible grace, how offensive the sound that doesn't save anyone. And their kids will sing, what even is grace? Who even is Jesus? We can't let that be the case. We've been entrusted with the gospel message about Jesus, who is Lord of all, saviour of those who entrust their lives to him. Are we a church that really gets that this is what matters? Whether you're 13 or, or 23 or... 40 or 83 are you guarding what's been entrusted to you how how are you going to live a life that really matters let me pray father we thank you that we have the gift that we do through the holy spirit 
and that it's he who empowers us for this on our own we don't have the strength or the courage to suffer for this beautiful message lord we need you to be at work in us lord open our eyes as to how we can guard the gospel help us to know it love it and live out a gospel-shaped life help us to be a church like this but also individuals and families where the gospel of grace and love and life through jesus our lord is lived out lord pour out your spirit on each one of us so that we can live to this holy calling that you've given us we pray in jesus name amen